Welcome to this very special festive episode of the Travelling Sisterhood Art Historians podcast. We are Caroline, Freya and Maddie and this week we are joined by two incredibly special guests to talk about all things seasonal. Join us on an art historical journey as we think about how images and objects shaped our world. This episode we are thinking all about winter festivities and to keep out the cold we've gathered together with a festive tipple to talk through our favourite seasonal works of art. So coming up in this episode we chat to the artist and illustrator Sarah Coomer about Christmas ghosts, why the supernatural is so compelling in the darkest days of winter and together we reminisce about festive childhood TV. Later on, we also talk to Dr. Jane Carroll, who lends her insight into her brilliant book on Victorian children's literature and material culture, and who takes us into the miniature and imaginative worlds of Beatrix Potter and the artist Walter Crane. But first, uh, we have brought along some of our own favourite objects and images from this time of year. And so, as tis the season, we're discussing them over a Christmas drink. What is everyone drinking? I have a beer. It's very (laughs) un-Christmassy. Yeah, I actually did buy mulled wine specifically, but um, I haven't had the chance to mull it yet, which is perhaps, I don't know if that's like a a symbolism for 2020, no, 2021, 2021. (laughs) (laughs) The the mulled wine is still cold, so I'm currently on a gin and tonic. (laughs) I have got a cider um, which is appropriate as I'm in the west country. Caroline I love the the whole process of mulling things and it's such a ritual every year isn't it of the house smelling really beautiful mm. and spending time adding the sugar and stirring and everything it's it's lovely. Do you two have favorite Christmas routines that you do? Do you have anything that that you do every year without fail? Well I love decorating the house and I tend to do it unseasonably early because traditionally some member of my family will come and stay with us on the first weekend of December and so we like to have the house very ready for that so I I really love decorating the tree and I am one of those people that collects ornaments every year to add to the trees so there's something that always kind of goes on that's new and I'm also as you both know very um serious about <laughs> all kind of seasonal festivities and I take sort of um my Christmas theming very <laughs> seriously so the tree in the <laughs> I have two trees the tree in the lounge <laughs> is um sort of Nordic red and white and sort of gingerbready themed and then the tree in the kitchen is sort of some sort of like acidic rainbow nutcracker theme. I also really look forward every year Freya to your um, Christmas table displays that you Instagram they are always lovely. They're so nicely curated. (laughs) Thank you and the themes of those match the Christmas tree so. um... I would expect nothing nothing (laughs) less at this point. As a kid I always remember my mum making Christmas puddings in like early November and being like this is way too early and smelling all the like candied fruit and everything that's going in but then seeing the process of her adding like very Irish (laughs) Christmas puddings like like so much whiskey I don't like every week up until like the day before Christmas Eve I always 
think about that process is something that always happens every year and I did one year try to recreate the Christmas pudding but it was not it did not go very well so I think I'll just food, stick with my mums <laughs> food's always so central to this time of year and also I always love going outside and cutting bits of ivy and holly and whatever is growing in the garden and bringing that inside although there's always the first couple of hours where all the insects crawl out of everything and you have to wash it off but I feel like that's a very an ancient thing to do and it always feels quite 18th century to me to be bringing in different branches of random things that I've got but it's interesting talking about tv shows and their renderings of material culture as well so many of those American movies from the 90s have the most gorgeous domestic setups right like the house in home alone and the one that i love the most is the one that's in miracle on 34th street you know oh my goodness, the one I that she gets that for movie. christmas at the end and i have always wanted to have a room that is decked out like that at christmas and it's that really typical there's a train that goes around on a track around the bottom of the tree and it's just this glittering confection of all the best kind of things about Christmas oh for goodness. me it's the the 1990s little women where they wake up on Christmas day and they decide to give their Christmas breakfast to what I suppose they consider to be the needy poor of, of the 19th century but the there's a, a sort of scene with the table laid out and it's just so so gorgeous and you get you can almost smell it it's just it's so beautiful isn't there a whole thing with the youngest one called with the tangerine like not wanting to give that up or something pementines I really associate with with everything I suppose Christmas and they were a traditional stocking filler right and then used a lot in like Chris Jingle as well um, like Christmas Eve celebrations and things like that so we've all brought along a festive image or a festive object that we want to talk about and some of our decisions are linked to the conversations that we have had with the guests on this podcast which you'll you'll hear shortly Caroline do you want to talk us through your object or image first so my chosen image is actually uh, one of my favorite seasonal books Charles Dickens's A Christmas Carol which I think really links to some of the conversations we were having in terms of kind of ghost stories around Christmas but I'm showing an image of Marley, the ghost Marley appearing to Scrooge, which was one of the original illustrations done by John Leach in 1843, I think. Uh, and essentially you can see Scrooge by the fire trying to warn himself and the ghost of Marley has appeared uh, shackled in bolts with his chains. And there's this huge glowing candle right in the middle on a gold candlestick and the flame is kind of exploding and it almost I don't know when I look at it it almost feels like there's a face in the flame it's kind of difficult to make it out at first but I suppose for me the role of light in Christmas Carol it has so many kind of layers and strands so you've got kind of the light of the fire the light of the different ghosts who appear to Scrooge and every all of that kind of working together and I suppose the more I thought about this image it drew me to think a bit more, could consider a bit close, more closely the role of candles as a sort of typical recurring motif during the winter season. So actually, we were just talking about Clementines and Chris Dingle and the role candles play in that and Christianity, this idea of the star of Bethlehem of light. But then, of course, the role of lighting the Hanukkah menorah in Jewish faith. Typically, you have like eight candles that are all burning brightly by the end of this festival to commemorate the miracle of the long-lasting menorah in the Temple of Jerusalem. But also then linking back to my own upbringing, candles played such a key role 
in the winter season, especially where I grew up, when we frequently lost power in uh, autumn and winter, so you constantly lit candles. Also, the idea of hand- having candles lit in your window, especially around Christmas time, is a sign to welcome people in through the door to know that they could drop and call. But also, I suppose, linked more broadly to the Yule altar and this idea of the winter solstice, particularly in, in December and especially in Ireland, this idea of of candles honouring the sun, uh, honouring this idea of coming together, of the remarkable nature of the burning glow of a candle, of bringing people together, of giving light and warmth and strength, maybe hope as well. But also there's something sad or unknown about the ephemerality of the candle as it burns away, reminding us the passage of time, that it'll all kind of fizzle out over over time as well so maybe that's a bit of a sad note I suppose to end on but I just there's something about candles and the smell particularly once you extinguish a candle the smell of that really kind of stuck with me I suppose memories of my childhood there's so much there about hospitality and domesticity and lighting up the darkness that happens all around us in in December and in winter and that's definitely something that comes through in our conversation later on with the artist Sarah Kuma and thinking about her work but also you know there's something there about the divide between the light and the dark and between life and death and of course in A Christmas Carol there's candles are ways to kind of signal when ghosts are going to appear or when they have appeared and that's something that I think has a very ancient feel about it and it's it kind of ties in with all these religious festivals but it also speaks to something I think more universal actually and more ancient than that as well. It's interesting this tension between sort of melancholy and and joy as well that is really so typical of Christmas and it sort of came through in our discussions with Sarah I think a lot of those ghost stories I guess the reason that they are kind of popular at Christmas is in part because they connect us to these long narratives within our families and thinking about passage of time as you said Caroline and and all of these things it's a, a notably familiarly inclined and, and therefore complex time of year. And I suppose actually the Victorian era, you have this moment where energy shifts and, and the means of mediating and producing light is moving from candles to gas and then obviously eventually to electricity so it's actually quite interesting thinking about the different materials that are used to kind of show and mediate the light through that as well. Freya what's your object or image? Okay so my object that I've picked was that it's an image was inspired by our chat with Sarah Kuma and as we were talking to her and looking at her works I was thinking a lot about Thomas Buick's winter scenes. Buick was a wood engraver and natural history writer. Uh, He was born in Northumberland in 1753 and he flourishes as of the art historical term uh, at the end of the 18th and the early 19th century and the piece that I've chosen is actually characteristic of a number of snowy wintry scenes that he makes. It is a tailpiece woodcut which is at the end of his most famous work British Birds which is a two-volume work. It's, uh, the first volume is published in 1797 and the second volume is published in 1804 and then it's expanded and 
different editions subsequently. Um, but it's an incredibly popular work. It sort of captures the imagination of numerous people. Wordsworth talks about how much he loves British birds and is mentioned in uh, Charlotte Bontain's novel, Jane Eyre. And one of the things that the book is particularly praised for is not only these very lifelike and beautiful images of birds, which is the main subject of the book, but these small vignettes or tail pieces as they're known. And they're small, sweet little engravings, sometimes quite witty and sometimes sort of pastoral in nature. And they just show very sweet countryside scenes. And the one that I'm discussing today is a very simple line engraving, um, almost well, no colour at all. All of the kind of contrast is created through the black and white and cross hatching. And it shows a sleepy English, very rural village, uh, a hunter or a farmer kind of figure trekking through the snow, his faithful dog. And in the foreground, there's a kind of higgledy piggledy wall, which is um, rendered very simply. Some of the reasons I like these works are in part because they don't look very 18th or early 19th century at all. They're, they seem very starkly modern. They seem like something someone, an illustrator might make today. Um, in fact, it reminded me really strongly of um, some of Sarah's works that we looked at, particularly her use of black and white and her emphasis on winter and, and natural scenes as well. So her emphasis on trees and stuff like that is very characteristic of Buick's work. And they also really remind me of that British romantic modernism. So that way in which British modernism is very characterised in people's work like Eric Revilius or someone like that, who are really interested in looking back to the 18th and 19th century ideals of British kind of pastoralism, um, but articulated in this really simple and modern way. And although Buick's work is not from that time period, these winter scenes really remind me of that interest and that very British rendering of the countryside. Something that I find really striking about this image is the portrayal of snow. And it's something that I think all of us learn early on around Christmas as children when we, you know, maybe draw a scene with Santa Claus and his sleigh or whatever it is. And actually it's impossible to draw or almost impossible to draw snow because of course it's white. And if you're working on a white piece of paper, it's really difficult to give shape and body to that. And actually I think the medium that's used here and this, this line drawing technique gives such a, a really tangible impression of the landscape covered in snow and actually you can even though it's a, a very small discreet and quite sweet image you can really feel the temperature sort of drop as you look at it I think I do agree I think that you look at this image and you kind of automatically feel cool but um I don't know if either of you have seen Claude Monet's uh winter haystack scene anytime I've ever looked at that it does kind of make you feel cold or you almost want to shiver like kind of transports you to this other world and I feel like this with this work but also with Sarah's work as well that you do feel taken away from your daily life and even here you can see that the figure is almost hunched over in the cold all bundled up crunching through the snow and there is I think you're right there is something really haunting here and there's a sense of movement as well which again I think comes across so much in Sarah's work and there's a sense of the hospitality and the domesticity that this figure is trudging towards right that he's traversing this fairly hostile cold snowy landscape and he's walking towards the village and even though it's rendered in black and white and we can't necessarily see any light but there's a sense that he is heading home and that there's a kind of safety in that which I think is a really appealing and quite universal idea. 
Maddie, why don't you tell us about your object? So I'm going to take us in a slightly different direction and introduce us to an object. So the object that I've chosen was inspired by the conversation that we had with Dr. Jane Carroll, which listeners will hear at the end of this episode. So when we spoke to Jane about her new book, we discussed the idea of children in Victorian Britain as consumers and thought about the role of gift giving and childhood engagement in material culture in the festive period in particular. And what I think really emerged was a sense of different economies in which objects operated and in which children had varied and various levels of agency. So we might think about presents that were gifted to children and then would be part of their toy collection or their book collection. But we also spoke about what happens to objects after they're gifted, so how they might be transformed to reflect perhaps a child's imaginative interior life, how they might take on specific meanings and stories beyond those attached to them when they are simply presents, perhaps waiting under the tree or in a stocking. So the object that I've brought along is, in fact, a toy. It was made, I think, at the end of the 19th century. It's the figure of a felt mouse. He's about 15 centimetres tall and he's dressed as a parson so he's got trousers and a jacket and a little cloth dog collar and a hat that's also made of felt and he's got this long felt tail uh, that pokes out the back of his trousers and trails on the floor behind him and under one arm he's holding a bible and the bible here is made of a piece of wood that's been carved to sort of imitate the lines of the of the book and it's bound in leather as a real bible would be he's also got whiskers which are made of maybe wire or some kind of thick thread and a pair of metal glasses metal spectacles that are balanced on his nose and that are quite charmingly nowadays very wonky he's a really appealing and charming item and I think he's one that's been loved really well so in our interview with Jane, we talked a lot about physical evidence that might be left on objects by children who have loved them, who've maybe returned to them repeatedly and even damaged them, and how we might attend to those details as historians of material culture and read them as the story of the life of the object, really, and the meaning that they may have carried for their owners. The mouse is in relatively good condition, but there are a few signs of of wear. So the tip of his tail, for example, has been chewed. And as I say, his glasses are quite wonky on his face, uh, which gives him a slightly sort of drunken look, which I think is quite befitting of a parson at Christmas. And interestingly, there are also pins stuck into the front of his outfit that take on the role of buttons on his coat. And I think these were possibly added a little later on. And this was actually a gift that was given to me by my own mum she found it in an antique shop uh, years ago and so for me it carries that kind of that history as well and that extra layer and I can't believe I'm admitting this on a podcast but I actually named him Sinjin after the the parson the clergyman in Jane Eyre so we've we've reached our second Jane Eyre reference um but yeah he's just he's really charming and I think very evocative of the, the kinds of material culture that are associated with childhood and Christmas that we all remember from our own childhoods. And that I think looking at an object like this, it's 
you can sort of see back in time to the children who maybe owned this 100, 150 years ago. For listeners, we have to say he's just absolutely gorgeous. I don't know why why it kind of struck me when you were speaking, uh, particularly about how he's dressed, is I just started having an image of making snowmen as a kid and always putting these particular features on them, like a scarf or coal or buttons or a carrot, obviously, for the nose or a hat and sometimes a jacket if you could find one big enough and your parents didn't notice you sneaking it away into the icy cold weather. And for some reason, that's just really come into my mind, into my memory. And there's something about all augmenting and extending the object that you're working with right as a child and using materials that are maybe to hand and I think traditionally we use a carrot for the nose of a snowman or coal for the eyes and it's actually reflective of the material landscape of homes at least for 100 200 maybe 300 years actually and the sort of objects that children would be would have to hand but also would be allowed to play with and that would not be missed from the home which is interesting thinking about the mouse the fact that he has pins in him presumably they they were pins that a child might have taken out of a parent's maybe a mother's sewing kit or something like that what strikes me about him is actually how he looks like he could be sold in anthropology currently like there's such a real trend for mice and foxes and other kinds of animals that are dressed in clothing and often holding things like little hymn books and stuff I think I even have one of those on my tree at home and so actually it must be a kind of a long tradition of of those little anthropomorphized little characters who are dressed ready for Christmas and and so it's interesting to see that go back so far. I think the fact that he's dressed as a parson as well it's it's quite playful it's almost subversive you know he's a mouse but he's a parson it's it kind of speaks to a kind a sort of piety but piety on a child's level that is also fun he also really reminds me of the mice from uh the muppets christmas carol yeah oh my goodness a truly excellent christmas adaptation i would say the best one of all yeah the best perhaps now you can sit back with your chosen festive beverage and listen to two fantastic interviews, which we really enjoyed recording. First up, Sarah Coomer, and second, Dr. Jane Carroll. to be joined by the artist and illustrator Sarah Coomer. Now, for listeners who aren't yet familiar with Sarah's work, the images that she produces are really fascinating and they often relate to well-known ghost stories as well as folklore and more broadly horror genres. Created using techniques that combine mixed media with digital technology, Sarah's work can perhaps be characterised by the eerie atmosphere and masterful depictions of the uncanny. Today we're going to be discussing some of those images, the stories behind them, and why she thinks ghost stories and the supernatural are particularly irresistible in the run-up to Christmas. So Sarah, welcome to the podcast. Can you maybe just kick us off by telling us a little bit about you and how you work as an artist and what inspires you? Right then, yeah, I I loved drawing as a kid and at the school, but I'm one of these people who kind of 
just stopped drawing. <laughs> I went and did an English degree and then just didn't do any drawing for quite a long time. And then uh, I did a, a, I just got back into it gradually over the last few years. I did an access course with a view to doing a fine art degree, but I've ended up doing illustration because I sort of realised that what I like doing is, or what I just do without even trying it, is, is actually tell story. You know, my illustrations always end up telling a story rather than making a statement or whatever. And uh, over the last few years, I've sort of developed this style, which is, as you say, sort of mixing digital and traditional illustration. And then when the lockdown happened, just as a sort of coincidence, it was happening anyway, but there's this thing in Scotland called 100, 100 Days Project Scotland, which is where you do one creative, a specific creative thing every day for 100 days. So I just decided totally off the top of my head that I would illustrate a ghost story every day. And it started off with me intending to do it sort of like uh, maybe like two inch sort of square ink drawing. <laughs> and it kind of exploded into this. Yeah, I, I, I just got carried away. And luckily, because it was locked down, I kind of had the time to do it. And it was taking me <laughs> a good few hours every day. But yeah, that's where all these ghostly illustrations came from. That's really um, interesting as well to hear that you did an English degree and that the work yeah. that you do is kind of, it's really driven by the stories that you read and, and interesting kind of telling a narrative. So just to pick up on Maddie's point and to talk a little bit more about that relationship between kind of narrative and story and your works, I wondered what is it about ghost stories in particular that inspire you and how do you go about kind of actually vi visualizing them so if we think about some of the great <laughs> writers of ghost stories like mr yeah. james they're often masters of building suspense and leading up to that sort of horrifying moment of realization where the monster or ghost is revealed but obviously that's quite different yeah. in a visual image so i was kind of wondering yeah. how do you capture that <laughs> um well uh, yeah good question i the thing is about ghost stories, I've always loved ghost stories. I've kind of, I don't know whether it's sort of just come from me or I've got an older brother who was also into sort of horror and ghost stories and had all the kind of strange phenomenon books that I used to go and sneak into his room and read. But yeah, how I, I don't, it's, a, it's a really good, that was one of the really massive challenges is how difficult it is to nail down a story in one image without either just sort of like being too obvious or the opposite, too vague. It's been really great because it's kind of, it's led me back to doing a lot more reading than I've done for quite a long time because you have to go back. You can kind of think, oh, I know those, those sort of like, you know, the key things that happen, but you do want the atmosphere and a bit of the details. So you're kind um, of living with those stories as you're producing the art that you're kind of, you're rereading them yeah, and you're almost at the same time, people. you know, I'll be kind of like, going, oh, hang on, and I'll sort of like be referring back as I'm drawing it or tweaking things. Yeah. So it's all very kind of on the hoof or that, that's a, that project certainly was because of the speed. And I was kind of getting story ideas. I had a few of my own, but it was great as well because I kind of put it out on, particularly on Twitter like just asking for ideas of either fictional ghost stories or real life in inverted commas ghost stories 
and got lots of ones I'd never heard of, was introduced to lots of writers I'd never read. So it was it was really kind of great. It did it totally fulfilled its project of kind of boosting my creative energies in lots of different di- directions. I love that you you kind of crowdsourced that material as well using social platform <laughs> yeah. to do that. I think yeah. especially, you know, with the last 18 months, it, it's a really um, useful tool, I think, of tapping into those broader creative kind of communities. Being an artist who is storytelling and then continually refining how you're telling the stories and the stories you're telling and I don't know, there's just a really fascinating dialogue happening, I think. It's a kind of a modernization as well of, you know, that image that we have of especially leading up to something like Christmas of sitting by the fire with a ghost story we've, you know, maybe taken off the shelf and family gathered round and and reading it aloud. And actually the role of social media in in finding new stories, broadening the community that you're sharing those with is, is, yeah, really interesting. And I think, as Caroline says, a symptom of the, the last 18 months really as well. And it, I think it really helped to sort of engage people in the project as well, obviously, because they were then sort of invested in it and it just kind of helped to sort of grow it. It wasn't just about me. It was about a sort of community of people. I think the fact that you're mentioning that you've been uh, speaking to like a larger range of people to get new ghost stories or ones that you're less known about. And of course, you are illustrating, you know, much more well-known ones, perhaps by M.R. Yeah. James and so on. <laughs> but I wonder if you could also maybe speak about the fact that you are starting to sort of visualize stories that have made it onto the television screen and, and, you know, films. I mean, did these works require a slightly different approach because they in themselves have been visualized in a particular kind of way through that medium? Absolutely. I mean, that was, uh, I mean, (laughs) when I look back on them, I think like there's so many that I have read M.R. James in the original Probably, possibly, in some cases before I've seen the the film versions, but yeah, it's very kind of enmeshed, and the illustrations are. This is another difficulty with it that that, that I found was like not just drawing a still from the film. That I wanted to sort of make it that kind of almost a combination of the original text and the and the adaptation to sort of like honour them both within the same illustration. I just think that for my sort of cultural history, watching especially things like The Box of Delights and The Children of Green No, I have very, very distinctive, sort of important memories of those as a child. Really, really kind of enmeshed memories. Admittedly, I watched those before I read them. I've read both of them since. But I think it is the TV adaptations that are placed in my mind rather than the original texts. And I think that's actually the same for, for a lot of people from, <laughs> from, what I, from what I get from people's comments and things. You're coming to something that's visual before you're experiencing the text and actually the, that sort of visual way of storytelling is primary experience of it. Thinking in particular about The Box of Delights and, and just for listeners, we're talking about, I think it was 1984, the oh, BBC yeah. adaptation. It's something that I have watched every Christmas since, since I was little. <laughs> um, and, and that adaptation in particular, I think, has such a strong visual culture of its own. And it's it's a really mm-hmm. interesting series. I think it's something like six episodes that combines different kinds of what were then, I guess, quite new technologies. It's got animation yeah. um, elements, sort of moving drawings, and there's all kinds of sort of weird special effects and audio yeah landscapes on top of live action the box of delights for those of us 
including Freya and Caroline, who have not seen it, is a story about a young boy that comes home from boarding school and is staying with, I think it is his governess. Caroline Louisa, who just basically has all these kids in her house. So his cousins come to stay and these kids basically just uh, are absolutely left their completely their own devices, which (laughs) I think is part of the story's appeal especially to children that these kids just do everything and one of them goes missing for two days and the adults are just like oh well she'll come home of her own accord when she's finished having fun like all good children's films they the adults are particularly absent aren't they and and yes. as as the events of the story unfold there's it becomes clear there's these supernatural elements and there's a sort of awakening of I guess, ancient English magic that's tied to the landscape that the children explore, but there's also a human threat and there's corruption Mm. and it all takes place in the run-up to Christmas and and Christmas Eve is this climactic moment, isn't it, in the story? Yes, it's all about the build-up for me. Christmas is like, Christmas Day is like, okay, Christmas Eve, fantastic. After that, it's all down. (laughs) Don't you think there's a, a, a magic that exists in the build-up to Christmas that dissipates, yeah. that maybe isn't necessarily tied to Christian festivities themselves, but the idea of lighting up winter and... Mm, I totally agree with that. I think it is, it's it's just, it, it, yeah, it's lighting up the darkness, isn't it? It's like, it's not really related to, fundamentally, it's not related to any religion or any sense of, you know, spirituality. It is like that kind of practical almost sort of survivalist thing that you you light you light up where you can you warm it up you kind of which is which is why the sort of that idea of like reading ghost stories round the fire and I suppose the sort of the televised sort of serials are a bit like that you know that you all sit round and you watch them and it's all lovely and cozy it's a different version of that it's just making the best out of a very dark time isn't it and it's interesting how your works capture those atmospheres and those feelings and emotions so much that that kind of interesting process of remediation right where you're looking at kind of an original text but then also the feelings and memories inspired by watching the show version and and then your work captures not only the story that you the original story but then these sort of later layers of feeling and emotion and and conjures that new and I guess that must be one of the things that your audience gets out of looking at your works right this sort of shared memory of evoked Christmases and winters and things like that. The Box of Delights is the one that's kind of (laughs) seems to hit a hit a note particularly uh, which is just great and it's it's a real honor to 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 feel that people like it so much and get so much out of it so we're, we're looking at the the image of the box of delights that you've created in front of us so do you want to maybe talk us through what is in the image and maybe a little bit about how you how you composed it because there's very interesting visual layering going on here and there's clues about the story and these all the sort of elements of it are present in this image so do you want to just describe it for our listeners and tell us about how you created it I it's funny how uh yeah that the memory of producing it has actually faded because it it sort of says I had a total nightmare (laughs) because there's so much going on in this story there are so many characters and they're all kind of really vivid and it's very exciting and there's like 
it, so it, I, I suppose I have ended up with a, quite a cluttered image, but it's not, there's, there's barely anything of the whole story in it, really. There's so much more, but um, to describe it, basically at the bottom, you've got actually the box of delights and it's, it is largely based on the TV series. Um, the imagery that I've come up with. So the box is open at the bottom and it's sort of like spilling light out onto the scene above. And we've got Cole Hawkins, who is the sort of main mystical sort of hero character. And he's been pursued by the wolves, which is sort of basically representation of like dark, the dark forces of magic. And in the background, you've got the the house, which is Seekings, which is Kay Harker's home, which is just basically the drawing of the the house they used in the TV programme. It's the the actual location. And then the uh, magical car aeroplane flying through the scene at the top. And then very faintly, you can actually see, I don't know if you can make out, there's Kay is actually looking into the, the box of delights sort of, very faintly in the background. I actually bought a, a print of this from your shop and I, <laughs> I didn't even notice Kay's kind of superimposed until I actually had it in my hands. And it was a really, it was a really nice moment thinking back to my own memories of watching the TV show and, and yeah. um, Freya and Caroline, who haven't seen the box of delights in, in the story, the box opens and it's this magical world and you can tumble into it and you can use its power to make yourself big or small or travel. And to see this image did feel like looking into the box actually and like you're sort of tumbling oh. into the story with, with <laughs> Kay which was which was really lovely and I'm, I just love as well the portrayal of very wintry light in the landscape and snow and I think that's something that's really present throughout all of your work actually Sarah that you seem to be very interested in portraying light and the the, the sort of the landscape often in a sort of wintry a wintry mode I suppose is that is that a bit of a challenge to do is, is that something that you that kind of lends itself well to the techniques that you use um thinking it, in particular about how you use like digital technologies to yeah yeah it is it's it's really interesting to me it's because it's it's, it's evolved so naturally and and strangely actually that when I was when I was younger I used to hate I, I was so not interested in landscapes and nature and trees. And I just thought well, that was boring. I, w- I just wanted to draw people all the time. And it's almost like I now, you know, give me a tree to draw and I'm in absolute heaven. I think the mixture, I mean, the thing is for these, for the Box of Delights one and the 100 Days project, they were all done completely digitally because of the time constraint. I didn't have time to to kind of do traditional media ones and then sort of like faff about with them, which is what I prefer doing. But yeah, I think since since I've I've done this, I didn't mention the trees actually <laughs> surrounding the the image of the box of delights one, which is a bit like a sort of the, a, a sort of paper theatre idea. And I think there's a scene in the in the TV thing and the book where Kay goes through this kind of forest into the box through these like uh, tree like a tree tunnel. It's interesting that you're saying about. Um, how you're drawing on those elements in the TV show that do actually include kind of special effects and drawing yeah. elements, and particularly, yeah, thinking about the forest. And um, I think that is, I'm not sure how they did that, but it's kind of layered flat images, isn't it? And which yeah, is very much what this 
image I think is recalling. I think at the time it was the the most expensive children's TV series because of all the different techniques. It looks to a, a modern, I mean, I've shown it to my kids and they're just like, Ugh, they're just not interested at all. Because I think now, you know, it's like 40 years ago, it, it looks slightly shonky, but I think if you've been brought up on it, it doesn't matter. You sus suspend that kind of like, um, you know, cynicism or whatever, and just really sort of throw yourself into it. Absolutely. Um, so the other image that we were going to discuss is another another children's story and I think this is also <clears throat> something that was adapted by the BBC for the screen yes. in in the 80s as well I think maybe a couple of years after the box of delights so so do you want to tell us a little bit about what this story is yes and it's very different visually from your depiction of the box of delights and it's much more sort of ghostly and eerie this illustration um the children of green know it yeah it's again my uh first introduction to this story was the bbc adaptation which i think was 1986 um and it, it is more of a traditional ghost story it's um so so this picture sort of depicts this young boy um tolly who is being again parentless sent to this house and it's actually a house he's never been to before and it's where his I'm not sure if it's his grandmother or his great-grandmother I think it might be his great-grandmother is looking after him because his father and stepmother are in Burma so he's going home for the holidays the Christmas holidays and it's flooded the the landscape is is flooded so you've got this this opening of this story is just sort of magical and scary and adventurous and it gets dark and he's picked up by this strange basically a stranger in a rowing boat with a lantern who rows him to this amazing ancient manor house and and in my my illustration is actually based on the real house that's um, um the manor at hemmingford gray which is what the original story was based on this house and it's basically these series of books are basically a love story to this house by Lucy and Boston, even though my memories of it, the story are very much tied in to the TV version, which used a different house. Again, it's a particularly, I don't know, it, it, it's just perfect, perfect Christmas story for me. And then obviously at some point it snows massively. <laughs> because it always does <laughs> in these stories I think yeah. that's again that's something that you've captured so nicely in this image is not only the sense of the landscape but the, the changing landscape and in this image in particular we're seeing the house is silhouetted and behind it there's this really dramatic moon that's casting light on on the flooded landscape and the theatrical element again of your work and the atmosphere the sense of the landscape the history of the landscape which is I guess often yeah. kind of tied to ancient buildings that you depict and I think that's yeah. all these are all crucial elements of, of sort of Christmassy ghost stories I think yeah they're all there and present in this image yeah I think that's the thing that sort of the Christmas and the ghost stories thing it's all about looking back isn't it it's all about nostalgia and 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 also like looking back on on people who've died and Christmas is past and it's all sort of just tied in with this nostalgia fest I suppose and often the stories that feature ghosts in those contexts are not always as 
intended to be as terrifying as they might be, but actually they have the nostalgia element and ideas of inheriting the past. I think particularly this story is like, absolutely, that is what, you know, because the ghosts, the ghosts are actually in the picture. They're in the top window, (laughs) looking down slightly ridiculously, but they are, ghosts are actually sort of some of Tolly's ancestors who all were alive in the 17th century and all died, I think of the plague, I think they, before adulthood, but they are never that scary. He actually, he comes to sort of befriend them throughout the story, but he's he's never scared of them. The only thing that's really the scary element of the book is Green Noah, which is a tree. And that's really interesting to me because that's a sort of like depiction of nature, sort of nature being scary. Whereas the domestic setting is the place to be. It's sort of, you, you hunker down, you're comfortable there. You're sort of like with, literally with the ghosts of your past, it's safe. Whereas the outside world is perhaps a bit more scary and unpredictable. Makes so much sense for winter being outside yeah. becomes literally a kind of threatening presence. Yes. But even the snow, even though it's wonderful and the flood is is exciting, but it's also perilous. It's you want to get into that house <laughs> out of the weather, basically, and, and and look out of the window onto the weather rather than being in it. Before we, we wrap up, Sarah, do you have a favourite ghost story? But for me, looking at a lot of your work, I particularly love the MR James illustrations. Yeah. Um, and yeah. I, I think they're, they're really capture the kind of the atmosphere and the growing dread that MR James is obviously such a master at. But is there is there a particular story or a particular writer um, or indeed a particular TV series or film that you've enjoyed. Oh, you put me on the spot now. I'd say the ones that spring to mind, uh, I'm saying that's cheating, I know, because I'm choosing more than one. But I think the M.R. James story that I like the most at this moment <laughs> is number 13, which also for me is a Christmassy kind of one, even though it's not set, because I don't think any of them are actually set at Christmas. Partly, I don't know why, it's set in a hotel. It's all about kind of hospitality. I think is, I don't know. Again, you're supposed to be sort of safe and secure and it's all kind of like a beautiful old hotel and it's like roaring fires, but then it's very, very strange goings on. And I've also got very, tied in with the TV thing, really distinct memories of watching Christopher Lee. He did a reading of four of the uh, M.R. James stories, which was recorded, I mean, I'm not sure when, um, but they were broadcast on the television. And you can also now get them as audio books. And that one in particular always stuck in my mind. And then there's another one, which is one of the ones that I was introduced to through this project by E.F. Benson, who, who I was only familiar with, really, and not that familiar with because he did the Map and Lucia stories, which is sort of like sort of social comedy. But he also wrote ghost stories and he wrote one called The Room in the Tower, which is just, oh, it evokes a sort of nightmarish quality so vividly. It's just, an, and it's, it actually ends up, it's actually a vampire story. And I love vampires as well, but that's a whole different thing. But but yeah, I, I would really recommend that you check that one out. Well, we'll look forward to your next series of vampire-related. <laughs> <laughs> um, 
Well, thank you so much, Sarah, for joining us. That was a real Christmas treat. And I'm sure we all want to go and read all the ghost stories now. Well, thank you for having me. So welcome to the second interview for our special holiday episode. We're delighted to be joined by Dr. Jean Suzanne Carroll, who is Usher Assistant Professor in Children's Literature and Co-Director of the MPhil in Children's Literature at Trinity College Dublin. So one of the things that I guess immediately sprung to mind when we were thinking through this episode on winter festivities and Christmas was the centrality of children and especially children's material culture. So things like toys and games and Jane's work really immediately jumped to mind. So Jane, please tell us a bit about how you came to work on this material and also about your brand new book, which is just out with Bloomsbury. British Children's Literature and Material Culture, Commodities and Consumption, 1850 to 1914. Thank you. I suppose the journey towards looking at anything is is really just a process of curiosities, isn't it? You know, when you hear about things or see things and you think, I wonder what was going on there. I started getting interested in this area when I read something about how the Great Exhibition of 1851 had a police desk for lost children and umbrellas. And I thought, how odd that they put those things together, you know, that they would sort of see lost children and lost umbrellas as, as a sort of similar category somehow, that they're just stuff and you just dump them at this desk and then find them later. But then when I went looking at the plans for the Great Exhibition Hall, the police desk isn't there. There's nothing listed on the building plan. So that sort of led me down this, this rabbit hole of trying to find out where the police were actually were. And I ended up sitting in the National Archives at Kew looking at the lost property records from the police at the Great Exhibition and they had their own police station, it was over the road um, in Hyde Park. There was quite a lot of stories of children in those lost property records, not children who had themselves been lost and dumped as though they were umbrellas, but children who picked things up off the floor as they were going through the exhibition and I thought the the children aren't looking at the things that the grown-ups are looking at, they're looking at the ground or they're looking at stuff people have dropped and then they were handing them into the police and after a year and a day you can claim something that you've handed in as as your own it's um it's I guess like treasure trove or something if you you know hand it to the police and nobody claims it then it's yours but they were writing and asking for the weirdest things like there was a mouthpiece from a trumpet and a child was like I really want it back I desperately need this mouthpiece from a trumpet I, I need it and then there was things like, uh, you know, a little bundle of watch keys and things that you sort of think, well, how did somebody miss this? How did they drop it and not notice? But that children were paying attention to these material objects in a way that the grown-ups were overlooking. And I got really fascinated by the idea that even as we had this great exhibition and this big catalogue and all of these things that we were supposed to be paying attention to, there was another box of equally interesting stuff just across the road. And, and it was children who would placed them there and become interested in getting them back out as well. Yeah, that's really fascinating, especially because of this tension from between this very real big exhibition, these huge sort of historical narratives, but then obviously you're interested particularly in how these manifest in literature. And that relationship between the text and the object is something that I've been very interested in and frustrated by in my own work, often because I've been dependent on an object 
that may lo no longer exist still and I've been trying to access it through a textual description but I guess for you in a way you have maybe more freedom or maybe this is more frustrating in that you deal with objects that may never even have existed so I wondered if you could talk maybe a bit about some of the difficulties of thinking about objects in this way and maybe how you sort of deal with their materiality when they're you know into almost entirely textual. I think it's a really good question because because quite a lot of the things in children's books do have their real life analog somehow. Um, even something as fantastical as Alice's Adventures in Wonderland, say, I mean, the objects there are, are are clearly tangible, recognizable things. And then in other books, the objects have have no sort of real real life correspondence, and it, it's a case of tracing them up by looking at the descriptions, the textual descriptions, or sometimes looking at illustration. I mean, we're, we're blessed, I suppose, in looking at children's books that there are so many illustrations, there's such rich visual documents in so many ways that make them, I suppose, challenging to deal with because there is always that tension, I think, between word and image. And there's a, a relationship between word and image that is worked out on the page, but also worked out in the mind of the reader, that it's up to you to make that connection and draw that out. One of the frustrating things, I suppose, is realising that, that texts are not books and that the book has its own material reality and its own objecthood that needs to be acknowledged and dealt with or addressed somehow before you get into the text. And that sometimes it was very tempting to say, well, I'm looking at a text and then realizing, no, I'm looking at a book. I'm looking at this particular physical object with these particular illustrations by this illustrator in this one particular edition. And I need to find an original copy, even though, I don't know, the world is saturated with copies of Edith Nesbitt's work or Lewis Carroll's work. And, and, and they're not all the same because text and book are not the same thing. But that's something that, I think is continually reckoned with. I don't think it's something that I've resolved myself or have a definitive answer to, but I think it's something that we have to continually be aware of and continually struggle with or, or be sensitive to maybe. Sometimes it can feel a bit of a struggle, but uh, I think your point about illustrations is really interesting as well. And, and I hadn't kind of made that connection, but of course, children's books are full of illustrations and often of objects, I think, which is really interesting. Yeah, there's a lot of illustrated detail, I think, in children's books that, that really appeal to the child reader who enjoys that sort of close looking as well as close reading, you know, that sort of immersive experience of, of sitting and staring at the page again and again and again. I mean, the repetition of reading the favourite story over and over again and seeing those little details in the background, that they're very accurate readers of images a lot of the time. And, and in our own reading experiences as we grow up, we have this process whereby we get fewer and fewer pictures as we get more and more sophisticated as, as readers. That, you know, by the time you're grown up, you might get this, you know, kind of tiny little swirly bit at the top of a chapter, one, and then a little calligraphic glyph beside it and nothing else. And that, that's it. That's your visual content done. Where children's books, especially books for very young readers, tend to have much more of a balance between texts and images. And, and partly that I suppose that's about acknowledging the pre-literate child and their enjoyment of a book or the child who is maybe not confidently literate by themselves, that they will enjoy looking at the pictures and then they call on a grown-up to come and interpret the textual stuff for them. And then we get a little bit older and we get those chapter books where you might get 
one or two illustrations per chapter, and then they dwindle and dwindle and dwindle as you get older. It's really only in the 19th century that you get illustrations in text for grown-ups in any kind of significant way. You know, you get the sort of Charles Dickens and, and you know, even the, the sort of Arthur Conan Doyle's, the come with those chapter illustrations, those little chapter headings, or, or really interesting frontispieces. And then they, they sort of fall by the wayside, I think, in, in the 20th and 21st centuries, alas. I'm really struck as well by how you talk about the sort of repetition of children returning to look at images again and again. And of course, thinking about the book as a material object, how that might be made evident on a particular book copy as well. Have you come across any examples of where children have have treated books or damaged them in in sort of unusual ways? Are you able to read into that? Yeah, there's loads of those things where, where something has just been loved to death. You know, its covers are falling off it's the most decrepit disreputable thing ever or children have made their marginal marks on books as they go through and 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 very often quite subversive marginal markings in a way that you know they're not limited to say comments about the text in any kind of uh, reactive way or responsive way but sometimes something that they just want to do all by themselves there's a lot of books we have in the Pollard collection of early children's books in Trinity. We have a lot of books that have been coloured in by the child readers. We've got a lot of child readers who've added things to the end papers, particularly because those are lovely big blank spaces in which you can draw nicely, you know, and and you can can really get going. Um, You can write poems in them, you can write notes to yourself, you can inherit a book from your brother and scribble his name out and write your name in massive letters and crayon. Um, You can write your name a couple of years later in slightly better handwriting, you know, when you've developed a new signature or something. But children very often engage with books in this incredibly physical way that, you know, if they love them, they love them. Um, And then, of course, we have this problem when we get to collections of children's books in academic libraries that the really nice, fair copies are the ones that were not enjoyed by children in any way. The Bodleian's copy of one of the prize books from the Great Exhibition, you know, they were issued as a sort of souvenir gift from the Great Exhibition. The pages had never been cut. This had obviously never been read at all, which which says something about the status of that book in the library. Where at the same time, if you if you look in some other collections and you find the second hand edition or the third or fourth, fifth hand edition of that book, that's been so loved. It's completely battered. It's awful. It, it You know, it's slightly foxed. It doesn't even start to cover it. It is so badly damaged. And but because it has been read and some of my work is is trying to reconcile that the sort of beautiful, fair copy that's in the library with the actual book that has passed through the child's hands. Yeah, I have to say that really resonates with me as someone who's, I'm the youngest of four. So I feel like I always got the book at the very end. And I, I think it's like, especially that I think it was a famous five series or something where everyone had written something in like various points. And I just got this battered copy, but I still, you know, still have in the family. So I don't know, I really like that. Uh, I think what really comes across in your work and, and when you're speaking, Jane, is the fact that you're really centering or re-centering the role of the child within these wider conversations and particularly this idea of them going to, to find these objects and reclaim these objects at the Great Exhibition. Do you think that, especially in the 19th century, that we can think about children 
when they're reading as consumers, the fact that they're consuming texts and objects, the objects themselves, the books themselves, and then the illustrations. Is there something that's perhaps heightened in texts that deal with the festive period, perhaps like this connection between childhood and Christmas gift giving, you know, it's completely cemented in this kind of 19th century period that you're looking at, but also perhaps the way that that children experience Christmas or festivity at this time. Is there something that's happening at that point in the middle of the 19th century in literature that's different from what's come before? Does the literature itself become a consumer product and do people's understanding around the kind of material culture of that change, do you think, as a result? There is a sense sometimes that that children have to be protected from consumption, that consumerism is bad or wicked somehow, and that children are innocent and free of it because somehow they're free of earning money or spending money. And, you know, it's our duty to kind of not advertise things to them or not expose them to the wickedness of consumption. But the fact is that children are always already consumers. You know, if they're wearing clothes, if they're sleeping in a bassinet, if they're you know reading a book, they have been given this consumer product by somebody. They're already consuming things, and and children have their own strange trade networks. And you know, if you think back to the schoolyard trades of marbles or cards or stationery or whatever it was, children are actively and enthusiastically engaged in consumer practices, and. I think what makes the 19th century really interesting, pretty special in a way, is that there's this huge upsurge of production in material commodities. You know, there's a huge upturn in, in the amount of stuff being made. And one of the things that there's a huge upturn in is children's publishing. There's this huge number of books being published. And, and the switch between cloth paper and wood pulp paper absolutely fuels this that all of a sudden books are much much cheaper to produce or you could you could see publishers who are making the same text available at different price points depending on its material form that there's a cloth bound edition or there's a leather bound edition or there's a paperback edition and these are all at different price points presumably then accessible by different classes or different kind of levels of income but children's books become this massive consumer product. You know, they're being advertised. They're, you know, the publishers are advertising the rest of their wares in the back of the book and in the end pages and things like this. And coupled with that then as well, I think there's a new enthusiasm for consumption more generally, consumer products, you know, the way that the Victorians are decorating their houses and the way that they're suddenly using disposable income to purchase objects or to create objects with you know whether it's collage or homemaking of stuff you know this this becomes something that children get engaged with as well and so at the early years of the 19th century and you get things like Sherwood's uh, a drive in a coach through the streets of London a story founded on fact it's about a little girl who goes on a coach ride with her mother and she says to her mother oh I wish I had something from that shop whatever she's looking at out the window and her mother said tell you what I'll give you something from every shop on this road but you have to have something from every shop and the child is delighted picking things out you know she wants a hat and she wants a coat and she wants a table or whatever but of course the last shop is a coffin makers and then she goes oh no mama I don't want it at all and the mother says well what use will all your material goods be when you're dead and it's miserable and it's all just the most awful thing 
but by the by the time we've had the great exhibition this sort of great turning point everyone's like stuff is great you know enjoy yourself you know have these things like wear your fandom on your sleeve and children's books like Alice's Ventures and Wonderland that's all of these commodities come out of it you know you can buy an Alice biscuit tin you can buy an Alice postage stamp case you can buy tablecloths you can buy all of this stuff that goes with it because if you're a fan of the book why not buy all this other stuff too and Beatrix Potter who I love I love talking about Beatrix Potter but she is the one who files the patent for the Peter Rabbit toy that she recognizes that this is going to be popular and that this will spawn these huge kind of upsurge in commodities related to her books so she gets in there nice and early and sort of says nope you know I've made a Peter Rabbit toy and now that's patented and that's mine and recognizes that there is going to be this consumer response to to her books and it gets worse around Christmas of course or better around Christmas depending on what you're thinking I suppose Christmas is that time of stuff and everything from Christmas cards and stockings and stocking fillers and Christmas decorations and baubles and trees all of this become commodified in the late 19th century. A little earlier in the century, it was much more common to give New Year's gifts, but then that sort of gift giving period gets relocated to the middle of December and then it all just sort of takes off. But I think children, because they are recipients of gifts first and foremost, become the sort of ultimate consumers of Christmas that we don't really expect children to go out and buy presents for everybody in their lives, or, or we bring them to the shops and sort of coach them through buying something suitable for Nana or Grandad or whatever it might be. But children, because of Santa Claus and his great magical ability to gift give, uh, they become the recipients, the uber recipients of stuff at Christmas. And, and, and so it, it sort of centers around childhood as this space in which that sort of top-down consumerism is enforced again. There's really interesting questions here about children's agency and all of this and the idea of blind consumerism and then selective consumerism but also a more intimate and imaginative curation of objects once they're in the child possession and I guess that can give a sense of these interior lives as they're developing and growing and we spoke a little bit at the beginning about the great exhibition and I guess you could view the objects that the children picked up off the floor and that they handed in as almost an alternative to the objects that are on display and it becomes a separately curated collection that's selected by children in that space experiencing the same displays. Is, is that something that, that you can kind of reconcile in your work? Do you see that as a tension between consumerism and, and consumption? Is there, is there a difference in terms of how we might read the possession and the use of those objects by children? And do they see it as separate things? Thinking about, I suppose, the idea uh, that I guess, becomes so widespread in the 19th century of, of Father Christmas or Santa Claus and the idea of waking up in the morning and these presents have just arrived, they're there, they're now yours and they're in your possession versus this more careful selection of things. Is that something that children are aware of? That's a very good question because I think, I think children are aware of it instinctively somehow, but grown-ups only become aware of it when it's shown to them in ways that they dislike there there's a tension between the expectations that a, a grown-up might have for an object that they have carefully selected and chosen and given to a child and the way that that child then goes on to use that object or misuse that object but if you give a child a doll's house 
And it may seem to you to enculture all of these wonderful values about neatness and homekeeping and housework and, and, and femininity. There is still nothing stopping the child putting the toy cows into the beds or, you know, some some other apparently inappropriate object can make its home in that doll's house or taking all the furniture out and throwing it away or breaking it. Or, you know, there are numerous ways that children engage with objects through play that allows them to assert that agency over those objects. And, and in some cases, it can be quite shocking. I suppose uh, Frances Hodgson Burnett, who wrote The Secret Garden, writes in her memoirs about being really, really affected by reading Uncle Tom's Cabin and deciding to play act slavery with her dolls, which is really strange, you know, and it's not what those dolls were intended for, or I'm, I'm sure what the grown-ups who bought her those dollies thought that she was going to do. And there's a there's a scene or a moment in that memoir when her mother comes across her beating a doll and she gets really shocked by it. But it's the child working through the textual experience that she has and, and not quite having the ability to articulate that or understand that or, or talk through that. Perhaps nobody around her was willing to talk through that experience that she now had and, and that lack of understanding or growing understanding that she was sort of developing and that her only way to, to figure this out or to sort of come to terms with it in a way is through play. And it seems massively disturbing to us to think about it a small child playing slavery but at the same time her play act allows her to to work through something through these material objects that is obviously sort of filling the gap of a conversation that's not being had uh, between her and the grown-ups around her and there's, there's something as well about the materiality of those specific objects and that the kind of scale of them and that they are a miniaturization of the world and therefore a way to to enact what might be happening around or what the child might have witnessed or might have absorbed, but on a miniature kind of safe scale. Yeah, and there's a power dynamic there as well, you know, that, that, that these are little and you are big. So you you are safely in charge of these things and and, and can put them away and start again as well. You know, that, that there's no long term repercussions to a play act of this kind that, you know, if you want to play doll's house and, and families with a doll one day and then you want to play Christian martyrs with them the next day that's fine you can do that and, and sort of reset every day with a new play act and even despite the sort of in, impermanency of those kinds of acts I think it's still so refreshing how seriously you're taking children's consumption even when you were describing the ways in which they engage with books. I mean, in book history, it's obviously become quite a big thing to talk about marginalia and these kinds of transformative engagements with textual objects. But it just sort of struck me that even these very sort of childlike and, and what we might think of as destructive forms of consumer behaviour, you treat so sort of sensitively, which is really lovely. So I think it's that point of the show where we ask our guest to talk about a couple of images or objects that they brought with them. If you could talk about them a bit with regards to childhood and their relevance to Christmas, we would love to hear about it. So this is an illustration by Beatrix Potter from her book, The Tale of Two Bad Mice. It was published in 1904. And it shows a Christmas Eve scene where two mice, Tom Tom and Hunka Munka, are putting a sixpence into a doll's stocking. You see the two dolls asleep in the bed behind them. And one of the dolls, the, the Jane doll, is a, a 
a wooden peg doll and her arm is sticking very stiffly at the back. She's very obviously an object in the background here, sitting in this tiny bed. The other doll, the Lucinda doll, interestingly enough, is, is sitting up and her eyes appear to be open. And she's almost like a real child at this moment on Christmas Eve, sort of peeping out above the covers to see what's going on. And it's a sort of a Christmas Eve scene, if you like, where the mice have replaced Santa Claus. We would expect Santa Claus and we see mice here. The mice are stuffing this sixpence into a, a striped stocking. Um, what's interesting for me is that it's not a special Christmas stocking. It's just an ordinary pair of socks that have been left over the end of the bed. And both dolls have, have their stockings hanging off, both pairs of stockings. They're obviously intending to wear them again tomorrow without washing them. It's a very dirty little dolls. You know, the idea that, that the Christmas stocking doesn't have to be something special. It's just an ordinary object that's transformed in this moment, in this slightly magical moment of Christmas Eve into something ritualized or sacralized somehow. I love this image, but particularly I love the light that you can see just kind of casting this ray across the image is just really lovely. You've got this candle in the foreground that's sort of lighting things and it gives this wonderful sense of coziness to it. I, I know that's not a very art historical term, but coziness yeah. it is, I think. Yeah, but even the way the light plays off kind of the different um, textures, the fur and the shine of the, the brown and the, the wood and the bed, but also the, the coin they're actually putting into the sock as well. There's just so much. And such a focus on the materiality as well. The, <laughs> the different textures are very, very tangible. And you can imagine being a child coming back to this image again and again with your Beatrix Potter book and, you know, kind of pouring over it almost. The mice almost kind of playing or play acting in, a, in the role of sort of the gift giver because presumably the dolls are non-sentient right so they they don't need gifts or or am I misinterpreting it because I don't know the story so the, the story the story is interesting that the two dolls are brought out for a walk by the little girl who owns the nursery and they're put into their buggy and off they go and in their absence these two mice invade their house and think what a wonderful world of commodities we've entered into this is wonderful and they sit themselves down to have what they expect to be a delicious meal and then are horrified to discover that everything's plaster and it's all a sham. And they set about destroying the house then. They, they go into this massive rage and they they throw all the food on the floor and beat it with the, you know, the tables and chairs. They, they, they beat things with the, the poker. They're just so outraged that, that the promise of the commodities as advertised isn't fulfilled by the actual stuff. And then halfway through the destruction, they're going to hold on, hold on. Some of this stuff might actually be useful. So then they steal everything that they can steal from the house. They steal the clothes, the bed linen, everything, stuff it back into the mouse hole. And there's this wonderful image of the mouse sort of running across the floor, carrying all of this stuff, you know, kind of uh, getting away from, from the mice or getting away from the doll's house. Um, and the little girl comes back and her solution is to buy a policeman doll to sort of patrol the house. But the, 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 the nurse or the nursemaid puts in a, a mouse trap and you see the little mice kind of learning about this other material object, this new object that's very dangerous. But what they're doing here is they, they find a sixpence under the hearth rug and decide to give it back to the dolls or give it to the dolls in order to pay for the damage that they've caused. But they don't pay for anything that they've stolen, really. And it's not even their sixpence that, you know, they, they, you know they've, they've stolen this too. But there's something really interesting here about the idea of gifting as, as a surprise, that it's, it's just repayment because 
they haven't been asked for it, but they, they give it freely somehow that they, they're compensating. So in a way, it's quite a subversive Christmas story that they're only giving back what they've already stolen. But at the same time, there's something interesting about it that they want to put it inside the stocking. As of course with gifts, we can't we can't ever pretend that they're actual real commodities. You know, we have to take the price labels off them and conceal them in some wrapping before we hand them over because it's somehow crass to say to somebody, "Oh, I spent this much money on you. Here you go." And I, I think even now that's why people get queasy about you know giving vouchers or just giving cash in an envelope. That even a voucher is better than cash because it sort of is a level of of thought that you've put in maybe or it, it adds another level away from the kind of I don't know the filthy lucre of the whole thing there's so much here isn't there about alternative imaginative economies then and specifically economies that a child might understand in material terms and might have even enacted with other children or taken part in and there's also I guess a, a sort of a tension with the reality of the mice and the artificiality of the of the scene and it's kind of complicated, like you say, the, the, is it the Lucinda doll with her eyes open, kind of peeping out? And she's, she's finally lifelike and, and yeah, there's a kind of strange animation of, of objects as well. And I think there's an inverse of what we would usually see in a Christmas scene where ordinarily it's the child in bed who is real and Santa Claus who is magical. But here we have the mice who are real and the dolls who are, you know, somehow magically uncannily alive within the story. And you get this tension of a fantasy reality, fantasy reality throughout Beatrix Potter's work, but I think particularly here because these mice, I mean, they're so, they're, they're such domestic animals anyway, you know, that they have this, this sense of domesticity and belonging to the home and yet not quite belonging in this particular context, maybe. So, Jane, do you want to tell us about your second image? A Christmas stocking for you. This is a Christmas card. It was designed by Walter Crane and it is held in the V&A collections at the moment. So this is a rectangular card. It is showing five children clustered around a Christmas stocking, which seems to have a leg in it. You know, it still retains the shape of the leg. But at the very top uh, of the image, you can see that it's full of presents. It's full of objects. And there's a child who is either taking things out or putting things in, but she is balanced up on tiptoes on a chair, on a high-backed chair, looking into the top of the stocking. And the other children are clustered around it, gesturing at it, feeling it, and um, think I think anticipating what might be inside it somehow. I love the different like levels of scale here. That it, it just looks so huge, and the teeny little kids like on tiptoes on top of the chair, like desperately trying to see into it. It's like a sense of sociability here, which is really really sweet. I think there's, there's a great sense of it as a sort of cornucopia, Christmas bounty somehow. That the, the stocking is absolutely rammed with things. And you can just imagine a child like or a family, I suppose, get receiving this as a Christmas card. And then they just know what they have to look forward to. It's a sense of the process of expectation that that comes back to this idea of, of what Christmas is at that point as well. And the kind of mass consumption that everyone kind of gets on board with, I suppose, as well at this point. One of the things that's interesting about it is how far it diverges from modern ideas about Christmas colour schemes you know Christmas cards as as images now are very sort of heavily codified maybe with with images of snow and Santa Claus and redness and greenness and whiteness and and here with this this pale blue stocking and 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 the children are clustered around it all except one wearing short sleeves 
that there's nothing winterish about this scene, really. The, the, the nothing seems to come over as, as a sort of Christmassy, except for this stocking. And I, I wondered to what extent we would know it was a Christmas stocking if the sort of caption didn't tell us what it is. That's back to, I suppose, that tension between word and image that we were talking about earlier. But I think Walter Crane knows what he's doing. So Crane, Crane, Crane did a number of things as, you know, as an advertiser, you know, he's he sort of, a, a commercial artist, you know, and one who who's very aware of the poster and how to use the poster space and how to use this sort of visual language in order to attract the eye and, and, and market a product. But of course, had turned his hand as well to illustrating children's books, presumably as a way to supplement his income. Um, but he brings that same aesthetic to all of his work, this, this idea that this is this is an advertisement that we see something appealing about this stocking to us. So we see it, we see it in a way as, as something that we can engage with, not only as a Christmas card, as a physical object, but, but as something that promises us something about Christmas, you know, that it promises us bounty and joy and excitement and all of the things that the children clustered around the stocking are, are feeling as well. been listening to the traveling sisterhood of art historians festive episode thank you to our guests and for listeners at home we'll be back in 2022 with a brand new season in the meantime don't forget to subscribe